Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 7 to 9. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Our second reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For over a year now, Bruce Springsteen has been performing what's essentially a one-man show at the Walter Kerr Theater. The show's called Springsteen on Broadway, and it features the singer-songwriter performing some of the most famous numbers while accompanying himself on guitar, piano, and on harmonica. And in between songs, Springsteen shares stories and memories most drawn from his 2016 biography, Born to Run. The performance loosely follows the arc of Springsteen's life from his childhood days in Freehold, New Jersey, through to becoming one of the most celebrated performers in the world. Springsteen on Broadway ended just a week ago, but you can now see a just-released film version on Netflix, and it's striking. And one of the most poignant sections of the show and of Springsteen's autobiography is his candid words about his parents. He speaks first in Springsteen on Broadway about his father. And he notes that his father wrestled with a disease, with depression, though as a boy, Bruce did not understand or recognize this. What Bruce did understand was that his father was angry. Bruce recalls nights of seeing his father down a six-pack in their kitchen back when he was a boy, and after this, his father would want to see his son, Bruce, and he said it always went the same way. It began with feigned affection for his son, and then it turned to rage at his son, a tirade of anger. 
Despite the pain in his account, Bruce Springsteen expresses remarkable compassion for his father and the disease and demons that plagued him. But then Springsteen starts to talk about his mother, and it's like you're peering right into the rock star's heart and seeing what gave that heart its drive, its vulnerability, its compassion, its determination. He describes himself as unabashedly a mama's boy. And he speaks with pride of his mom's work as a legal secretary at Lawyers Title Incorporated and how she never missed a day, how she found her work a source of energy and meaning. Bruce loved to visit her at Lawyer Titles Incorporated when he was very little and he recalls walking home with his mom after work and how she would look down on him. He can still picture her her appearance, he says, jet black hair, olive skin, red lipstick, as was fashionable, he notes, back in the 50s. And as she looked down at her son, her face beamed with love and pride. That look, he said, it was like the grace of Mary. It was like a grace that came down from the heavens. And at 69, he describes this as if it were yesterday. He can picture this so firmly in his mind and heart. You know, sometimes somebody looks at us or says something to us that just gets through all the muck and mire, all the confusion and self-doubt, and says to us, says to you, you are beloved. You are beloved, not because you have earned it, not because you're some superstar. Remember, at this time that Bruce got this look from his mom, he was unknown. There were not yet the adulating fans or the acolytes or awards. He was just a little kid struggling in school. And maybe that's why he found his mom's glance so powerful. It was love he saw that was not based on what he had accomplished. It was simply a woman looking down on her son with love and delight that this was her child. And as Bruce talks about it, you get the sense that that glance was more precious than any award or acolyte or screaming throngs of people, screaming, Bruce, Bruce, that look, that glance from his mom is what centered him and is more precious than anything that came since. He describes it like a grace that came down from the heavens. You know, of all the images that we have in the Bible, of all the metaphors offered in terms of Scripture that try to help get our hearts and heads around who God is and what God's like and how God looks at us, the most prominent has to be that of God as loving parent. Time and again, Scripture paints for us the portrait of God not simply as a parent, but as the kind of parent who looks down on you when you are a little girl or boy and says, you are beloved. Your righteousness has not earned you, my love. The parent simply says in their look or in their words or in a gesture, you are my child whom I love. I can't help but beam with pride and delight just looking at you. Today's passage from the prophet Isaiah offers just one such scriptural portrait of our God. I will recall the gracious deeds of the Lord, we read, for God said to us, surely they are my 
people, my children. In His love, He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them. These words paint the picture of the prophet looking back on times in the past, times when he saw that he and all of ancient Judah with him were beloved by God, and they were loved not for the great things they had accomplished. Isaiah is very candid about some of the people's misdeeds and misbehavior. The prophet Isaiah is honest about this, but he also proclaims that they were loved, this people and he with them as a parent might love their own children for just being their children. What were those gracious deeds, you might wonder, those moments the prophet can recall when he glimpsed the grace of God like Springsteen looking back on his childhood and seeing those glances from his mom. We aren't told, but we can make educated guesses. He might have looked back on that time God looked down on a people enslaved in Egypt and had compassion for them and lifted them up out of slavery. He might be thinking back to that time when God walked this people through the desert, appearing for them in a cloud and fire, showing up in thunder and lightning on a mountain, showing up in a moving tabernacle. He might have thought about how God fed this people in the desert with manna from heaven, with water from a rock. Or maybe Isaiah is looking back on later events. Maybe the prophet is reflecting on times later in the history of ancient Israel, like that time the Hebrew people had endured exile, forced to live far from home in Babylon, and then God brought down the Babylonian emperor who had imposed that exile on the ancient people of Judah. And after a new emperor, the Persian king Cyrus came to power, Jewish exiles were allowed to return to their former home in ancient Palestine. Maybe that homecoming is what the prophet is imagining as he recalls, quote, the gracious deeds of the Lord. We can't know for sure what those gracious deeds are Isaiah is reflecting on, but what we are told is that Isaiah can look back on times in the past where he glimpsed grace. And that grace in the prophet's mind comes from the author of creation, from the God who rules over all things and yet looked on God's own people with love, the kind of look a parent would have for their child. No matter what behavior might be in their past, they celebrate that this child, these children are mine and delight in those children. In the Scripture text from Titus, we see again this image of God as loving parent. And what's striking about the Titus text is how crystal clear the author wants to be that this love comes not because the recipients of this love deserve it. No, we read God even looks on a people who have been, quote, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another, and he can go on, all of that, and God still looks at this people and says, you're my children, you're mine. I've declared you heirs, heirs of eternal life through Jesus Christ. I have poured out my love on you. I've poured out my Holy Spirit on you. I've given you new life in the waters of rebirth and renewal. And I've done this not because of your deserving. That has nothing to do with it. Truth be told, you probably aren't deserving, but I love you 
My love for you doesn't depend on your merit. I've given you all this, even a love that saves you, even life eternal, simply because I love you like a parent would their very own child. You've been justified by grace, we read in this Titus text. Grace meaning a love from the heavens that comes down and gives us life and meaning and purpose and identity, not for our deserving, but because we're declared children, children of a loving parent. Now, while the text from Titus doesn't explicitly mention baptism, the reference it makes to the waters of rebirth and renewal make us think perhaps this language was used in the ancient church when baptisms were celebrated. And the imagery, the framework this text employs, it shapes how we understand and practice baptism today. When we celebrate a baptism up here using our baptismal Font. We bring out, of course, parental imagery of God. And in baptism, especially when we baptize a child, we recall how God's love was poured out for us in Christ even before we were old enough to be aware of it, that it comes to us not for our deserving, but because God has lavished it upon us. Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. We say this at baptism, and we see how it's marked with water. And when we celebrate a baptism, everyone's invited to remember, remember that you too were baptized. It's an invitation, like Isaiah puts it, to look back on the gracious deeds of God, how God's love in Christ reached out to you and lifted you up and carried you. This quality of love, this nature of God's love that comes to us like a parent's love for a child, it is precious, and baptism is a great time to celebrate it. Now, why? Why is this love so precious? Why is the kind of love a parent would have for a child simply because that child belongs to the parent, that a grown performer at 69 years of age, that Bruce Springsteen can look back and say, that, that was gold? Why should it be something so precious we celebrated in worship at baptism and marvel over it as Christians week after week? I like Henry Nouwen's answer to that question of why unmerited love is so wonderful. Nouwen writes that there's a very loud, consistent, and powerful message coming to us from our world that leads us to believe that we must prove, we must prove our belovedness by how we look, by what we have, and by what we can accomplish. You know that message, don't you? You have heard that message from the world around you. We're surrounded by messages that say we don't measure up or must prove ourselves worthy of love. What a gift. What a grace to be able to glimpse even for a moment that we are beloved simply for who we are, children of a parent who loves us. And so our scriptures resound, resound with this good news. Now, there's a problem. I know you're thinking an important problem with using parental imagery for God. And of course, there is a problem. And the problem is the same as the problem with all earthly metaphors. They fall short of being perfect symbols of the things they strive to point us towards. If we felt love from our parents, even if we did, it was imperfect 
love, for our parents were imperfect humans, broken vessels who could not hope to display the perfect love of God. And worse still, we might have grown up parentless as many of the children we visited at the Casa Orphanage or the children we visited at Covenant Children's Homes have had to experience. Or we might have had a parent like Bruce Springsteen had in his father who communicated to him on many evenings not his belovedness, but his unworthiness. We might have had parents who even abused us, making a parent figure a poor image to communicate to our hearts and minds the unmerited love of God poured out for us in Christ. But still, still, even if we failed to see or too rarely saw unmerited love from our earthly parents, we have a sense of what it should look like, right? We know what it's meant to be. And holding that portrait of a true, loving parent in our minds, doesn't it help? Get at what Scripture wants to say God is like. Doesn't it help us picture how God truly looks at us, people God has claimed through Christ as God's very own. Well, sensing that love, when you've seen it, glance, a gesture, a word, when you know your belovedness, it can inspire you, ground you, renew you. It can give you life and identity. And what's more, when we know that love shown to us by God in Christ, it directs our scriptures say our hearts outward to love God and to love neighbor. As first John famously put it, we love because God first loved us. Now evangel is the Greek word for good news and from it we get the English word evangelism which simply means the passing on of good news. And a classic Christian response to discovering our belovedness in God is to pass on that good news, that evangel to others, that they too might know their belovedness in God thanks to the gracious work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Too often the message people associate with the church is one of judgment or even condemnation when in fact we have good news to share. It can be especially good news to those who are parentless or those whose own experience growing up left them longing for a sense of unmerited love that they never received. Knowing the love of God, it directs you outward in love, not just in sharing good news, but in advocating for the dignity and worth of all people, all those created in God's image, all of those who are part of a humanity God came to save in Jesus Christ. Well, for Knox's Advent devotional, we invited many of you to share words and some to share art that might call to mind or be your interpretation of the themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. Beth Bolsinger agreed to do a piece on love, and here is what she made. This piece by Beth Bolsinger features the words in the background, fierce love. And it calls to mind various protest efforts calling for the dignity and worth of other human beings. Here's a woman holding a Black Lives Matter sign. Here's a picture of Emma Gonzalez, a young woman and survivor of the Parkland, Florida school shooting this past February. Gonzalez gave a passionate plea 
for tighter gun control laws. Here are a pair of women holding signs that read in English and in Hebrew the words abolish slavery. They were part of a protest against child labor back in 1909. And here's a picture of children of various ethnicities joining together in a 1960s civil rights march. And they're holding a sign that says, no child is free until all are free. And of course, at the center of all this is a baby held in loving arms, parental arms, I imagine. Perhaps it's an image of God's love for us, the kind of love we read about in Isaiah where a parent loves a child and picks them up and carries them. Or maybe that child being held is an image of the love that inspires these advocacy efforts, a love that says every human being is a precious child deserving of love. Perhaps it's a reminder of the incarnation and a baby born in Bethlehem who would be God's expression of unmerited love to the world. Right here in gold are the words from the prophet Isaiah, and a little child shall lead them. See, when you know the gracious love from God that has been lavished on us in Christ, imagining that great gift of God in Christ, it points your hearts outward to love the world, doesn't it? To share good news, to be a part of good news with your actions, your advocacy, and your love. So this Advent, remember the invitation to love. And the invitation at its heart is not for you to go out and love, though I do hope love will inspire you to do just that, to love God and to love your neighbor. But the invitation to love for Christians, the invitation I want you to hear, this Advent is an invitation at its core to savor, to recall, to know again the rich love of God poured out for you in Jesus Christ, a love that said you are the beloved children of God. You are mine, says the Lord. The invitation to love is to recall that how that love of God in Christ is unmerited. It's given to you simply because you are declared God's child, and it is rightfully called a grace. Look back on it and savor it. A final story about the power of love and how it can point us to that love that comes from God and came to us in Christ. Of all the stories I have heard of unmerited love and how it can be communicated by an earthly parent, one of the most moving has to be that of Susan Armstrong. If you read about her story You can read about it in the book, Four Things That Matter Most. And in that book by Ira Bayak, he observes many individuals and families who face terminal diseases and writes about their final days. And Bayak observed that one of the four things that matter most is being able to say the words, I love you, and hear the words, I love you. They mean so much. We look back on them and hold them like a grace. And Bayok tells the story of Susan Armstrong. At age 42, this wife and mother was diagnosed with ALS, 
or Lou Gehrig's disease. Within a couple months, she required a cane and then a walker. The doctors were alarmed at the speed of her deterioration, and Susan was furious. She fought with her disease daily, and what enraged her most was that she couldn't do acts as simple as cooking for her six-year-old daughter or brushing her daughter's hair. She desperately wanted to show her daughter that she loved her, but she couldn't perform even those most basic acts of service to communicate it. As the end of her life neared, as she began to realize she was not going to make it to see Allison's seventh birthday, she thought, what can I do to communicate love so that my daughter might somehow hear that message that she's loved simply for who she is. And Susan had an idea, and she hatched a plan. She got some friends of hers together, four friends, and they made gifts and dictated messages for Allison to open at every one of her birthdays until she was 20 years old and at other major life events. The gifts and messages would remain wrapped awaiting that designated birthday that graduation, or finally, that wedding that Susan herself would never get to see. Susan's first card to Allison for her seventh birthday that she never saw went like this. Dear Smoochie Girl, I hope your seventh birthday is terrific. I hope you have the best party ever. Don't forget how much I love you and that I'm with you in spirit always. I did not want to leave you. You will always be my little girl, and I will always be your mommy. I love you and daddy so much. Happy birthday, sweetie love, mommy. Friends, don't those words point heavenward? According to the abundance of his steadfast love, Isaiah proclaimed, God said, surely these are my people. These are my children. And so we are. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.